0: Hi everybody, this is episode 50 of the podcast, which I'm thrilled about. The first season was a struggle and only included about 25 episodes, and we're just about nine months into the second year, and there are already 50 episodes total now. Next year, I hope to arrive at a more predictable weekly podcast schedule. I'm really grateful to you and all the listeners who have supported this show and helped it grow to this point. Today on the Get In My Garden podcast, I thought it would be great to meet a local backyard homesteader who shares his wisdom with us from over 10 years of natural farming in downtown Albuquerque. Sam Lopez has created an amazing and flourishing oasis in this desert city. In our chat, we cover a lot of ground, such as keeping laying hens and rabbits in your own backyard, raised bed gardens, composting systems, a special kind of beehive called a waray hive, his no-till farming practices that support the soil food web, methods he uses to make compost to keep the ecosystem balanced, water catchment and sustainable practices that relate to the home and garden, as well as how this lifestyle and philosophy affects his kids and family. Sam is a natural podcaster, and he will tell us all about these things. I also toured his urban homestead and took videos, which will be available on Instagram at Get In my Garden. Visit GetInMyGarden.com and make sure to sign up for the email list, which will soon include supplemental and special content or freebies, as well as articles or other interesting things that I share with my close friends. I hope you'll subscribe to the Get In My Garden podcast wherever you listen from, and leave a positive review if you want to support the show. I just got a tour of Sam's backyard. Would you call it a homestead?
1: I would call it a homestead. We've juggled different names and things, and it kind of ebbs and flows on us feeling we have to call ourselves something. But, yeah, urban, homestead, farmstead.
0: Awesome. (laughs) Well, for the people who are inspired to try different things in the backyard, can you just describe – I mean, you just gave me a tour, and I'll put some videos up on Instagram, but can you describe all of the different things you have?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I would would be happy to. So we have a backyard that's roughly uh, 65 – Feet by 65 feet. So we're we're extremely pressed for space. We're downtown in Albuquerque. And so we're in a very similar location that anybody out there would, I think, understand. And so what we do here, we have raised beds that we grow vegetables in. I mean, just a wide variety of vegetables, flowers, herbs, kitchen herbs, medicinal herbs. We have fruit trees and grapevines. We also do... Uh, we're beekeepers. We have a small apiary with two hives that support honeybees, and then we have composting. We we compost for ourselves for the garden. Then we kind of round off what we do with we have laying hens. So we have chickens, chicken coop with ten laying hens, and then we most recently kind of got into a little bit of a area of meat rabbits. So we have we raise meat rabbits now that. They kind of support again you know meat for our family as well as they contribute to the compost making and whatnot so
0: that's uh, that's what we do that's awesome and you so you showed me your compost and you have a special type of beehive uh which I will show in videos. Can you describe that and why it's different? Sure. So
1: what we do here, again, it's all about, um, you know, we're we're just a family. We're a family of five. It's my wife and my three children. And it's, you know, we're not about, none of this is a a money-making enterprise. So whenever we look at the things that we've added over time, it's really about how it supports and sustains what's happening in the backyard. So the bees in that regard, the hives, there it's it's what's called a warre hive and it was put together by a, a french abbey back in in the 1940s or so and it's really a very uncommon hive it's a very simple hive it's it's actually called the people's hive he designed it to be very straightforward very much about anybody could put it together and and work with it and work with the bees it's a cross between top bar hives and langstroth hives so it's um a 30 centimeter square box. It's a vertical hive. It, you know, it produces honey for us. And again, we don't sell it, but it it, it plays a bigger role for us in what we're doing here in terms of supporting the pollination of our garden, of the, the, the downtown area. And again, it contributes in, in our mind to combating um, the decline of honeybees and pollinators in general. So
0: yeah, totally. That's so awesome.
1: It's actually the most complex world that we uh deal with out there maybe besides the compost making which is micro level, but the organism of a of a colony with the queen and workers and drones, everything. It's amazing. We've been overall doing this for about 6 years and I'm nowhere near knowing uh, you know a lot. I just know enough that it makes me want to learn more each each season or each time we we go through an event with the bees, but they're insanely addictive and like I say
0: complex to absolutely to to have I just cannot get enough of them I just every everybody who's keeping bees that I know who starts talking about them yeah it's like an unlimited kind of subject well we can do that again maybe later in the year when you're uh, doing the bee tours cool 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 if you'd like to so you've got your compost Uh, we went over some of the People who you use chicken? How does how does someone process chicken waste into compost?
1: So again, what we do with everything we do here, uh, and I mentioned on the the walkthrough with you earlier, it's really centered about on the compost making. I mean, all you know, we do the veg, we have you know meat rabbits now, we have chickens, but everything we do is actually centered on the compost making. And so the way that chickens support the compost making, number one, is their their poop. It's a really hot nitrogen-based input to the compost. So compost is basically four things. It's air, water, nitrogen, and carbon. And carbon and nitrogen, those are the physical really inputs besides water. But carbon is going to be straw, dry leaves, just old veg material. And then nitrogen will, would be chicken poop. Um, it could be rabbit poop. It could be, you know, green grass, anything that's just more live, more live when it when it's put in there.
0: So mainly, the big difference is that it's so much higher in nitrogen, and that's what how it burns.
1: Correct. Yeah, you've got to. Uh, it's got to be mm. um, calmed down, or or watered down, or just re- reduced. And so that input into the compost making. So we we do we produce two batches of compost a year: a spring batch and a fall batch. Uh-huh and again we we have it down to a cycle where we we put in enough material that we can get those on schedule the The only other big part of uh the chickens that help contribute again to the compost making is so their run that they are that they're in daily and their the hen house has straw, and that's again a bedding material for them they'll they they go through that and through again their poop and whatnot in the the hen house. When we when we put that material, which in that case it's going to be a mix of carbon and nitrogen, that's a huge input of material for the compost making. Uh-huh. Their feathers, their feathers will be in there. Gotcha. That breaks down. I don't know what that would be considered. Maybe carbon, carbon. Yeah, feathers.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: So so again, all of that is what goes into the to the compost making. Not to mention, you know, leaves um, from from fall. Veg material, like when we went through our early spring brassicas, and when we're done with the with um, say broccoli, and we we pick the broccoli, all that material goes in there. Sunflower stalks at the end of the season, any material that's done in a certain area will just be chopped
0: up to some degree and put into the into the bin. And so, compared to someone in like area that's forested, you know, and very wet, we have very different soil conditions. So can you describe how you started and what were the first steps?
1: So being in the high desert of uh, the Southwest in Albuquerque, so really hot, dry summers. um, And actually this year we've had, you know, a lot of rain, a lot of snow over the winter. But really the, the big difference for what we do here is how do we keep things moist? So you'll see in a lot of the beds that are out there, the raised beds, will we'll mulch with straw, and again, that helps to reduce evaporation of water when we do apply it. With the compost making, again, as I mentioned, the four elements, air, water, nitrogen, carbon, we, we need to add water to it and, and then keep it covered. And then again, kind of same principle, it helps to retain the water that does get there. I mentioned earlier that with the chicken coop, we have a, a rain barrel that harvests rainwater and again, the last couple of days here, we're heading into the monsoon season here in, in Albuquerque. Huge rains, and that and it's a 55-gallon drum, uh-huh. and that thing is filled every, every shower. I mean, it's just incredible wow. how much wow. water is out there. So big difference with what we do here, I, I think, would go back to the mulching, keeping things as moist as possible. will water in the cool of the morning and or evening, so we kind of help to have that not go through a cycle of immediate heat and, and loss. But otherwise, I think those are the two approaches that we kind of use to minimize loss of moisture huh. when, we, when we do get it.
0: Are you collecting water off your main roof or just your chicken? Just the roof? chicken roof. It's and amazing. Then, and then we kind of have it set up on
1: our, we have rabbit hutches that we started in, in November. Those are set up to collect water. But yeah, then actually the next step is the roof on our house because it's, it's a huge roof. And again, the, the idea that there's so much capacity, even here in, in the Southwest, I mean, there's, the water we do get is like totally, we're, we're very much able to use it and collect it. And we should, we should take advantage of that opportunity.
0: Yeah, some places they don't even allow it, which is hard to believe. Yeah, yeah, that's another topic. But yeah, some places they consider it
1: not yours, but uh, anyway.
0: Well, but here, I mean, I lived in a house where we collected all of our rainwater and went it went all into the shower and everything mm-hmm. so and just off of a sixteen hundred gallon cistern, that was enough for me alone when I was living alone
1: oh yeah, no there's you know not only even collecting rainwater but the more you get into that world of sustainability and reuse, I mean gray water systems right uh, oh yeah dishwashing and and laundry. All of those are very much able to support not only just landscape native landscaping, but even some veg or fruit tree, mm-hmm. maybe not material or plants that are so much direct pick and eat, but like for instance, fruit trees, right they're up in the air, but that water system
0: can can provide a source of um, irrigation. Yeah, that's great. And then you you talked about no-till. that's like a huge topic on the internet. I mean, some people, have farming equipment and they that's just something that they would never consider you know but can you describe the philosophy a little bit
1: yeah so and actually in the front yard we have what are called what would be called you know permanent raised beds we had sod out there we'll we'll take a look at it remove the sod created these 30 inch wide permanent raised beds and built them up Uh, there's no wood to them but they're they're very much defined you'll see them and the thought is behind no-till is that you're you're not tilling it, you're not turning the soil over. Basically, you're building the soil up, and you can aerate it. I have a broad fork and I actually use the broad fork on the, the raised beds in the back, which are more conventional, formed by wood, you know, 12, 18 inches deep. But what I'll do there is the same thing as I will I don't walk on them. So we're not compressing the soil. We're only building it. It's light, it's fluffy. I mean, I could go out in one of the beds, like, for instance, the bed that we took out the potatoes here about a week ago, about 18 inches deep and nothing but fluffy humus-based kind of soil. And humus is what really is the output of compost making. And you'll see, you know, because, again, a lot of the input that we put into our compost is kitchen waste. Uh-huh. And we're, obviously we have chicken eggs and the eggs get eaten, the shells go into a, a compost bucket on my counter, a little, well, a, kind of a big-sized old coffee container. That will collect veggie, fruit waste, um, napkins, cardboard, paper, and then, like I say, eggshells, and we put that in the compost. Now, that takes a little bit of more time than um, other things to break down. So you'll see, my point is you'll see a lot of eggshells in my beds because it's an actual visual that, hey, this was from our compost making. But um, so all we do is really aerate. And with the broad fork, you just loosen the soil. You don't turn it. Mm-hmm. And that's because of, again, the structure of the soil. You're, you don't want to necessarily mix it. There's a layer effect going on by adding compost in the spring or fall. And all you're doing is building that the, the situation in that bed for for microbes and earthworms and nematodes and pill bugs and whatever. And they're all making that soil alive. It's really, you're supporting the idea of the soil becoming very much alive and not so much, you know, quote unquote, dirt.
0: Absolutely. So, well, the soil food web, the more I read about it, the more interesting it is, kind of like bees. And so it seems logical that you wouldn't want to disturb it because if you're destroying the fungal relationships mm-hmm, in yeah. its space, how is it it's going to take that much more time to get going?
1: Yeah, yeah, fungus, bacteria, and it's amazing whenever we first started doing this and the beds were very young and they, they didn't have a lot of structure to them, but the bees that we had from the beginning would find a water source there. And so number one, they're looking for, they're looking for water, the li- the life in the in the soil when we had compost I think was a number was a very much was a bigger key to why the bees were there. Wow, there was a, there was a, a very a, a strong connection because you could you would see them where we would say just planted a tomato, and when we would do that we would top that area with with fresh compost, and that's where they were. The surrounding area, which was maybe older material, maybe not so alive, they weren't around it. So. I don't know. Maybe I'm they're wishful really, thinking, but I think it had to do with the compost. No, it makes
0: perfect sense. Yeah, I mean they are tracking bees and their movements, and apparently they gravitate towards trees with specific fungi on them mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. get you know benefit for their hives. So for sure, they probably know exactly what's going on. Right around your healthy, I, yeah, I totally, soil.
1: I totally believe that.
0: And you mentioned also that you are doing a special rotation. Can you describe that and like how it keeps the different bugs at bay and things like that?
1: Sure. So again, we have uh let me see 10, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Eleven. So we have eleven raised beds. One is dedicated to the strawberries that we just started this past spring, but everything else rotates between those 10 beds in a in a specific rotation that again follows specific things. So the purpose for that. Is that you don't allow any kind of pest or disease to build up in one location, and then it and then it kind of really affects the soil and then the succeeding plants that grow there. So we don't ever let that happen, which means we just rotate the different crops that we we grow. You know, between those, the other thing we do to combat disease or, or pests is we do com- companion planting, and so we have a lot of we'll have marigolds throughout the garden. That's a big deterrent to to pests with our tomatoes. we We plant, we interplant basil, and that co- helps to combat the nasty um, tomato hornworm. I think in in the six years we've been doing this, we've come across maybe two or three. whereas I know before when I had just one plot of tomatoes, it was they were there, I mean the whole season. Wow. so again, it it helps to um, alleviate buildup of any issues that might be out there. In fact, this year we started. We hadn't done zucchini for a long time because of the, the 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 bug that's associated with them that can decimate them. Started them this year. Really, I think haven't had one yet. And so we'll kind of rotate them. Maybe that's the key for them. But we kind of had them in one location, and they would they would constantly show up.
0: Interesting. And you're only using city backyards. So, I mean, this is a podcast. You've described it a little bit, but there are people who may not even start because they feel like they don't have enough space. But I think that now, even at the farmers' market, a lot of the farmers have just a backyard.
1: They do, and that's why I was we've been doing the backyard for quite a while. The front yard, which again with these with these three raised beds, that's a little bit more of a you know kind of this concerted effort of production. So out there, the thirty foot long thirty inch wide beds will do one bed of carrots. Mm-hmm. and last year, when we did that or kale or spinach or or radishes. Even with those three beds in the front, it's a lot of veg. And so the potential is there for people that have backyards that could do that model or they do front yards. But, again, the idea is that what I hope people that are listening to this get is that it's, like I said before, we're just a, we're a family. We're a normal family. We have a dog that barks while we're trying to do a podcast. But it's all, it's all very doable. Even, for instance, compost making. So we have our, our bins in the back. They're four by four by four, and there's two of them. If you're in an apartment, you could do vermicomposting in your apartment. You could have a tub that's no larger than a standard cooler, and you could do vermicomposting with worms. Mm-hmm. And that would produce enough compost, again, over a certain amount of time to support maybe a, a tomato plant on your you know, apartment balcony it's like, I hope to inspire people to think beyond that, you know, their location isn't a limit. It's what can I do in the location? Like when we started, we're like, okay, we're not out in the country with acreage and, you know, ditches for irrigation. We're in the city in a small lot. Obviously my type A personality has allowed me to organize this super efficient with the layout and orientation and whatnot, but it's very doable in any setting. And, like I say, it's really the the limit is only into what you're you have time for.
0: It's a type of person though that like they're super interested, I think. and most of the listeners of podcasts, particularly mine, I think are they're really interested in learning, so it's a great thing to have as a hobby
1: that that's the key. That's another key is that you know again, as we've learned um, what grows well together, what doesn't. What can support one another? As I said before, everything that we do in the back has to have at least two jobs. You know, if you're not doing two different things minimum, you don't get to stay. So everything is like it's dependent and it's varied. Like I say, we don't do one crop, but we have a variety of things happening. And I mean, that's kind of like life. The The best situations in life, I think, are ones that have a variety of outlooks and inputs coming together and, and kind of working together in harmony. Things out there are supporting one another, but, you know, they don't compete. You know, like I've always seen a, I think I've seen a meme out there that with flowers, right, we have lavenders, we have snapdragons, and they don't, um, they just do their own thing mm-hmm. and they let the, the neighbor do their own thing. And then when we look at them collectively, it's like just, it works, right? maybe people can have that outlook a little bit more frequently in our our very testy times of uh, of, That's of the world a
0: really, really good point yeah 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 and also you so how does it affected your family I mean, and how are they involved, the kids? Because oh, I, I was a big, I came from a gardening family too.
1: Yeah, so I grew up, you know, you, we we raised zucchini or t- tomatoes, but in a small scale. So what, what I've tried to instill or, or what we've tried to show the kids, and they've been involved in everything. They've planted seeds indoors and nurtured them to be transplanted out. They've planted seeds in the back. They've raised baby chicks that we got from wherever, day-old chicks. They've raised them. They've raised and dispatched rabbits. They've worked on compost. They've suited up and, and um, helped with the bees. So they're they're aware that very clearly that food does not come from a supermarket. They're very clear on that concept. And I think what I've tried to really hope or hope they've gotten out of it is that they they have the potential to be in control of what they consume. They vote every time if they go out and buy something they vote with what they want to support their body with and they've come away with an understanding of the connectivity of our natural world to our built environment. They've come away with an understanding that again, you know, food miles and, and the industrial food approach is not a sustainable one. It's not a healthy one. And so hopefully, like I say, as I, as I grow up and they grow up, I'll, I'll come and visit their, their farmstead someday and say, Hey, I'm, I'm glad it took, but again, they, they understand health-wise that things that you consume are very important and like where they come from, how were they raised, even even to the point that, you know, for us, all of the veg that we we um, we grow is either direct sown or we start indoors under grow lights. So we know where that seed came from. We know how it was raised. We know what we put into it. Um, same thing with like the chickens and the, the meat rabbits. We know how they were cared for. We know mm-hmm. what kind of quality of life they had before they were turned into our, to food for us. It's important, I think, in, again, a world that we become maybe more disconnected in the big picture for them to have an understanding of and to have a connection to what is going into their bodies as, as nutrients and, mm-hmm. and and nourishment.
0: It's a great, I mean, I don't have any kids, but I might one day, and it just seems like the perfect way to get them thinking and... People are detached from the earth, you know. Right. And once our hands get in the soil, only—I mean, not only that, it's supposed to have actual like benefits with pheromones and hormones and things. Oh yeah,
1: no the the, the idea that in the spring and, and spring and fall, when when our hands are in that compost and we're digging a hole for a tomato or we're we're spreading out whatever and we're we're working it, it's. Um, yeah, it 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 be you know that that's there's life there and it, it does i think nourish your body physiologically to a certain degree but going back to what does this do for the family or kids i mean at, at a certain time of day also i'll uh, just go out there and you know whether it's listening to uh, the chickens play around and they're their cheap entertainment or you're just enjoying uh, as you saw that hummingbird show up the the insect life and natural life of, of, of things that are happening in the garden, you you know, it's a calming thing. It's a, it's a uh, contemplative thing. It's a, it's a, a spirit, you know, supporting area that is like a refuge to the, to the busyness of our everyday world.
0: That's awesome. And then I also think just from talking with you and others who are actually doing this, I think it does change your philosophy like directly in a way that makes life easier because so many people are just, fighting
1: right now. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, like I say, we, we've been, we, we, we have contributed to pollinator and bee tours, uh, to, there was one time, a, a just a garden show that we or garden tour that we were on. And, and again, the, the dialogue with people and the, um, the connection with others that we'd never have a chance to meet and not because we just, we just don't have that opportunity, but because they come here and, and we can share, uh, builds that,
0: that relationship with others that are out there. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to uh, talk with people about? No, I appreciate you uh, babysitting my dog
1: as we've done <laughs> this podcast, but I'm i am happy that I had the opportunity to share and, and hopefully, you know, if anyone follows up with me, we're on Facebook. We, we have a lot of content on our Facebook page, but also whenever these, the garden tours or the pollinator tours, we, we, love, we love that direct more. I mean, I've, I've answered questions and comments. We're on a couple of different, Groups within Facebook. um, Okay. And so we dialogue there, but we're always open to people coming by or or, um,
0: just dialoguing, you know, kind of. So cool. Thanks for listening. I hope the Get in My Garden podcast has inspired you to continue learning, to continue your hobbies, projects, and businesses related to natural farming, hydro or aquaponics, bees, fungi, soil in the soil food web, microbes, plants, and however you are involved in entertaining yourself in a way that benefits the earth and our future. And again, follow the show at Get in My Garden on Instagram to see pictures of what we discussed here and to hear about upcoming episodes. Also, visit getinmygarden.com and make sure to sign up for the email list, which will soon include supplemental and special content or freebies from our guests, as well as articles or other interesting things I share with my close friends. I hope you will subscribe to the Get in My Garden podcast wherever you listen from and leave a positive review if you want to support the show.